Hello and welcome to episode six. Can you believe it? Episode six of the Keep It Renal podcast. So this podcast is really all about sharing different perspectives uh, and as such it's really great to have Rachel Lennon with us here today who will be talking about her work but her role as a clinician scientist. So this is somebody who is both um, a clinician working in the hospital looking after patients um, but also having a dedicated academic role uh, leading research programs. Um, so it'd be really interested to hear from Rachel about how both these roles sort of coexist and how one might benefit the other. Some of you may know that the main filtration part of the kidney is called a nephron. Um, and within the nephron is a tight ball of capillaries uh, known as the glomerulus and this is actually where filtration itself occurs. So the capillaries within the glomerulus um, are tightly wrapped by cells called podocytes and these are like little octopuses that sit on top of the capillaries and wrap their tentacles tightly around the vessels Um, and between these tentacles is a structure known as the slit diaphragm and this is actually the sort of molecular component of the sieve itself. This is the structure that can be deranged in disease. Um, Now Rachel's research program looks at something called the extracellular matrix Um, and this is a mixture of proteins that cells lay down just to add structure. It's basically like a sort of scaffolding system that cells can hold on to. Um, But in order for cells to know what extracellular matrix to lay down, they have to know where they are, you know, what tissue are they in, what organ are they part of. Um, And they mostly know this by virtue of um, listening to the signals that come from the cells around them. So within the glomerulus, um, we're mostly talking about podocytes, mesangial cells and endothelial cells. There's communication that goes on between all these three cell types for each of them to function properly. Um, And I suppose it's Rachel's programme really to understand how the extracellular matrix is made um, and how it might differ in disease. So I mentioned a few techniques here, so for those of you who are au fait with the science, please feel free to skip forward a couple of minutes, Um, but I just thought I'd spend a little bit of time explaining a couple of terms that I use during this podcast. So you might hear me mention Western blotting, Uh, and Western blotting is a way of looking at how levels of proteins might change within a cell in various um, conditions. Um, So what we do is we take a load of cells uh, that have been grown in a flask, and we pulverise them in a special way uh, to extract the protein. Um, And then the protein is run out on a gel, so um, they're separated by size. Uh, And the blotting part is we put that across onto a special bit of paper. Um, And then we can look, and you just get a little band that's, if you just imagine, like a little box. um, And we can see whether certain proteins have have increased or decreased in, in in their totals. A sort of more sophisticated way of looking at how proteins are changing in the context of diseases to use proteomics. Uh, and this is where Rachel and I sort of discuss the modern problems with microbiology and that we're just getting lots and lots of data. Um, so proteomics can tell you how every protein in the cell is changing, whereas when you're doing Western blotting, you're really only looking at one uh, protein per blot, usually. Um, and you hear Rachel mention the term core facilities um, and this is where a university might run a service that is available to all departments, um, all teams within that university and indeed outside of that university 
um, as opposed to a research team running a technique on their own, which is sort of, which can be expensive. It's just a way of sort of combining uh, resources uh, and making a more efficient use of, of time and money. Uh, I must apologise for the sirens that are going off. Uh, Bristol really isn't as crime-ridden as it sounds at times during this podcast. Um, But the content is great, uh, so I really didn't want to cut too much out. I know Rachel does a lot of work in terms of patient outreach with uh, with Alport syndrome. Um, So some of you may be quite familiar with what Alport syndrome is, but briefly... It is caused by an inherited defect in something called type 4 collagen. Um, So collagens are the things that basically hold our body together. Um, And they are, when you, if you get a cut and you then get a scar, it's because your body has been unable to lay down the collagen in the way it did initially when you were being built. Um, And it can't lay down the collagen in the same way. So it lays it all down in a straight line and that's why you get your scar tissue. Um, in patients with these inherited disorders in um, collagen type 4, they basically end up with a glomerulonephritis. Um, so they, they have blood in their urine and ultimately they end up leaking protein into their urine. So they get proteinuric um, and then this can lead to um, end-stage renal failure. But they also have hearing loss. Now I'd be quite interested to talk to Rachel about what it's like when you have a patient that has um multiple conditions as part of a syndrome so multiple symptoms but if those symptoms cross specialities how does it really work then so i really hope you enjoy today's interview uh, and without further ado here's rachel what's it like getting a foot in each camp and how do you think one benefits the other our enormous cross benefits I think um I think one of the I so I guess from my kind of um pathway then it very much started um with a clinical bias and um um, and went through my clinical training and then inevitably there are things that we don't have answers for that um are relevant to how we treat patients um and uh, you know many situations where we don't have treatments that we can offer in in in, in clinical scenarios um, so I think the opportunity to come out and learn more and see whether you could contribute to that knowledge that would push forward treatments was um, a fantastic fantastic opportunity and I think um, I had that for the first time in Bristol um, where I could see um, just the enthusiasm that came with um, other clinician scientists who were combining those those two roles. Um, you know, I think it's a challenge in itself in that you are, um, you know, they are two two quite different roles, um, and um, and they can separate and feel at times as though you're. Yeah, doing I was going to say, how do you sort of negotiate things? the? The sort of difference in timescales in that the immediacy in the clinic of when yeah. there's a problem and a treatment and it gets better yeah and you might see the need for a drug but obviously that's years and years and years away even, yeah. if, even if you can sort of write the grant and get the money for it so do you have to sort of split those parts of your mind yeah I think so I mean that you do I think as as clinicians we are aware of that urgency and it does give you a degree of impatience you want things to move forward you want to be able to offer something different something new something improved um but 
at the bench in the lab, you realise that this is um, this has to be a, a really careful and thorough process to to, to make um, significant advances. So there is a uh, a mismatch yeah, there in yeah. terms of the pace. Yeah. So could you talk to us a little bit about how you got to be where you are and yeah. your PhD and stuff? Yeah. So yeah. So that was so my first. Um, experience, I guess, of um, glomerular cell biology was when I was um, a training paediatric nephrologist in Bristol, and um, Monday lunchtimes were where we had our academic meetings. They, um, they still have those, and yeah. they still go. On. Um, and this was, um, I think, the kind of the meetings were um, the, the meetings that I found most kind of compelling and, and interesting, where where we were hearing, you know, fresh data from the lab and. Um, um, and it was um, that was the kind of first, I guess, opportunity where a door was opened, and um, um, and I was able to go into the lab to to do my PhD. So um, had funding from the Wellcome Trust to do uh, a clinical training fellowship, and so um, came out of clinical training for three years and started really in earnest um, research training. Um, and at the end of that time, I. I guess as clinicians we have the option of well you know do we kind of leave it at that or do we yeah. try and continue yeah. with a combined career um and i was very much um of the mind that i wanted to continue for as yeah. long as i could and you, um, you worked under the supervision of moyne moyne yeah. yeah so moyne and moyne Salim and peter matheson were yeah. my uh, co-supervisors and then at the time in the lab was it was simon satchel doing his phd at, around that just time just ahead of me so okay. uh, we had richard coward and simon who were so it's quite a strong time for clinician scientists, yeah, <laughs> sort yeah. of where you were all made. I think we were, yeah, <laughs> we were fairly dominant in the lab at the time. Yeah, yeah. So, think just thinking about the science side of things, what what is your main research interest now, and how has that sort of evolved over time? Yeah. So I think that's it's always it's kind of an important uh, thing that we're always sort of trying to. Um, identify our focus you know what is it that we've got um strengths to be able to work on and you know importantly the the interest and the uh, the passion for um and coming out of um the phd with moyne and peter then i was very much kind of in glomerular biology um, but i had an opportunity to um move up to manchester um where there are real strengths in matrix biology and so um i joined martin humphrey's lab martin's um um, got kind of internationally renowned um, expertise in adhesion biology, adhesion um, signaling, um, and Martin's lab is based in the Wellcome Centre for Cell Matrix Research. Um, so that's where I, I landed in Manchester and started to um, try and understand more about that landscape of uh, matrix and adhesion uh, biology in the glomerulus. And as a starting point, we needed to um, understand a little bit more about that immediate extracellular environment that podocytes, endothelial cells, mesangial cells live in. Um, um, and so um, one approach that we uh, used to understand that from a global perspective was um, proteomics. So we spent some time um, optimizing methodologies to ultimately define the, the glomerular matrosome. Um, um, and so that took us from understanding this um uh the, the the core components of basement membrane mesangial matrix of be as being a, a handful of proteins that have been very well studied to you know over a hundred proteins that um 
are likely important for the regulation of that yeah. extracellular environment. Yeah, I think that's one of the problems that people talk about in biochemistry in that in the sort of 80s and 90s and early noughties, I guess, people were spending their whole PhD to sequence one gene or, yeah. you know, to find out one promoter element. And now we've got the opposite. You can do like one proteomics experiment and get a database that you could spend your whole PhD yeah. sifting through. Yeah, um, yeah. It's really interesting how that's sort of changed. It's good information, is power, but I think we're, we're trying to catch up with the approaches to actually analyse this yeah. stuff now. Yeah, I guess it's trying to harness that complexity now. Yeah. So we have the data and, and that's an ongoing kind of question for us. You know, why do we have so many of these? What are, what are the, what's the role of some of these less abundant components? Mm. Um, so we've, I guess, more recently um, in the lab. So my lab's coming up to being 10 years old wow. this spring. Wow. Um, and, um, and our kind of um, interest is very much in that glomerular matrix and cell biology um, uh, context. Um, and we've chosen particular... Um, uh, disease scenarios that are relevant there and so um, Alport syndrome which is caused by um, uh, genetic mutations in the genes that encode type 4 collagen key component of the glomerular basement membrane um, is what we've been focusing on for the last few years trying to understand uh, the differences between how um, in a healthy scenario a basement membrane is assembled maintained and regulated um, um, and how that might change in the context of mm -hmm. genetic disease such as Alport syndrome. Mm -hmm. So I was reading about Alport syndrome and I saw that you get hearing loss and sort of extra renal symptoms. Yeah. How do you find that clinically having to work with other specialities? Do you find that you, because obviously medicine is set up such that you sort of have your tissue or organ specific speciality, but these syndromes don't often work like that. So how does that work when you have to work with other specialties? Yeah, you, you, you make your connections with the teams that you work with. And in nephrology, there are teams that we um, spend more time working with by the nature of the uh, overlap uh, compared to others. Um, so yeah, I guess from, a, from an Alport syndrome perspective, then patients will be engaging with nephrologists um, at some point along the line. Um, uh, transplant surgeons um, um, from the kidney side, um, then engaging with um, audiology from the hearing um, uh, side of things and ophthalmology uh, um, um, because of the um, eye defects that are associated with um, the mutations as well. Um, and so that's a it, it's probably more of a challenge for the patients than yeah, um, yeah. than the clinicians. Um, um, I think that. Uh, communication is relatively straightforward in the context of Alport syndrome um, and one thing that I think we could definitely improve across the um, across the patch is trying to streamline some of these um, uh, visits or in, or mm. in, or um, um, uh, yeah these clinic visits for patients where you know if you if you need to three, see three different specialists three times a year then you know, there are better ways. Yeah, than let's do it on the same day. And yeah, yeah. That's yeah. Right, so so I, I suppose I was thinking a bit more, and this might be a completely stupid question, but do you ever find yourself at cross purposes treatment wise? So if all the drugs yeah, are sort okay. of, you know, you can end up with quite a bit of nephrotoxicity to some yeah. of these drugs, 
do you ever find that the sort of ophthalmologist or whoever is saying, right, well, we're going to give them this to clear mm-hmm. whatever up. Mm-hmm. And as the nephrologist, you're like, yeah, thanks, you've just boxed the kidney. Yeah. Does that sort of thing ever crop up? It does. I mean, I think there are, you know, I guess there are certain drugs that we're really cautious about, particularly in paediatric nephrology, um, in terms of their potential for nephrotoxicity. Um, non-steroidal anti-inflammatories are, a, you know, a, con- a, um, a common um family of drugs that are used in um in the childhood age range um for um uh, relieving temperature for pain for inflammation um but we know that there's a risk of of nephrotoxicity um and so you, you there will be those um conflicts um and i guess one way to help resolve those is to is to cr- increase that awareness amongst our patients. So yeah. our yeah. patients are asking those questions yeah. Yeah. Um, uh, to the relevant clinicians. Yeah. So I, I was I was just thinking that when you're talking about your lab being ten years old, and my one of my biggest memories of your work was probably it was probably about six years ago. It was before we moved here when we were up at um, Southmead. Yeah. And um, you had just one picture, and it was um, an endothelial cell next to a podocyte, and just mm. a thin. It did just look like a thin line, and at that time you hadn't you hadn't gone any further than that. I think it was literally just look when they sit next to each other in the dish, they're doing something different. Yes. Um, and I should say at this point, with the cell culture systems that we have in Bristol, uh, we've gone into three D cell culture now and using different cells. But at that time, we were just doing two D cell culture monoculture for the vast vast majority of the time. This was completely. New. Yeah. That must have been pretty awesome when you saw yeah, that. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I guess what we started off with was trying to understand how uh, relevant the in vitro systems were for studying matrix and basement membrane composition. And so that led on to um, mass spec proteomic studies of uh, matrix um, derived from cells in culture. Um, and once we had an idea of the composition, then the next thing was, well, what does this matrix look like? And um, one really good way to visualize matrix is um, using electron microscopy. Um, so that was one of those um, really nice days yeah. when you're at the microscope and you think, whoa. Um, so when the cells are in monoculture, they lay, all, all adherent cells in, in culture will deposit a matrix underneath the cells. And that's required for them to adhere and for them to survive. Um, but when you get um, glomerular cells and podocytes and endothelial cells um, in co-culture, not only do they deposit that basal layer of matrix, but they start to assemble matrix between the two cell types. Yeah. Um, and so this was, and you know, still does that image, still does um, suggest that they're, you know, they're starting to assemble a primitive basement membrane, um, and they're responding to uh, crosstalk between between the cells. I mean, I think it was off the back of that image that Gavin Welsh, Moinsley, we've mentioned, and Jack Tuffin. Yeah. their whole 3D culture system sort of came out of that mm. one image. Mm. It's really nice in my head. There's there's few there's only a few talks, isn't there, where you think it's a real moment where you feel that your knowledge has just stepped forward, and that was definitely definitely one of them. Yeah. Um, are there any techniques that you're doing in your lab that still just make you think, wow, every time you do it? So we've got the in cell analyzer here that we mm. can we can if we're looking at cell signaling instead of just using Western blotting. Um, which would look at a population of cells. Actually, we can look at individual cells and find that 
whilst we think of cells in a dish as a homogenous group, actually, that's not, not the case at all. Yeah. And that still blows my mind anytime anyone shows that. So I just wondered if you had anything like that going on in your lab. Yeah, I mean, we've got, I guess what we're, we're supported um, in the Cell Matrix Centre by some fantastic core facilities. And I've worked, my lab has worked really closely with our proteomics uh, core facility, as well as our electron microscopy core facility. Um, and one of the instruments that we have in the EM core is, um, a serial block face scanning uh, electron microscope. So here's where you're able to take uh, a tissue of interest, embed it into resin, into a resin block. Um, you have to pre-stain the, the tissue, but then the, that block goes into the uh, microscope, which has got an inbuilt knife or microtome, um, and that microtome is cutting and um, you're, you're imaging and cutting in sequence, so um, it's all automated. And so you, you cut, slice through a volume of tissue um, and capture at ultrastructural level resolution uh, the data. And those, I think seeing those volumes and those movies that you yeah. ultimately create, yeah. um, we, we're always learning something new yeah. from those. I mean, I think we're such visual creatures that sort of adapting whatever we're learning in the lab just to sort of appeal to our senses a bit better mm. and it, it's always the way you could show as many graphs as you want but if someone's got a nice yeah. movie or a really nice image it really does uh, speak a thousand words yeah they are they are really really cool and one, one thing that we were keen to so we, once you've got those data of course they they're yeah, it's em it's standard em it's it's um it's it's grayscale and you can colorize those images by segmenting and modeling features of interest and so one of the things that we um, uh, clearly focus on is basement membrane um, uh, morphology and in a study that we published a couple of years ago we found um, evidence that um, podocytes in the context of injury and disease start to send processes down into basement membranes so sort of almost like invasions into the into the basement membrane and they being able to look at that those um, uh, EM images over a volume allowed us to track and trace uh, these processes. Yeah. And what are they doing? Are they trying to like anchor themselves more firmly or sense the composition of the GBM and how it might be changing? Or yeah, so that, I guess that when it's what's great about science and research is that you know each finding and observation leads on to a whole load of more a whole load more questions, and uh, you know they're, they're they're some of the questions that we. We, we work on now what are they doing is it is it a good thing for yeah. your podocytes yeah. to invade or is that a bad thing are they starting to digest that really yeah. important scaffold yeah um and if it's a bad thing you know are there thing are there potentially targets in those processes that we could um learn more about and potentially target from a, a yeah. therapy perspective it's funny talking to um peter ratcliffe about um the feeling of ever feeling like you've finished you know do you ever get yeah. a sense of completion or like a tick or you can move on from that because there is that every experiment generates at least one why yes. if not 10 yes um and he's he said that he did actually so it's good news that a nobel at least makes you feel a little bit like you finished something but even then he said there's always the why and then there was the drugs that have gone into clinical trials so you're just yeah. never finished it's a good thing mostly but sometimes i think it'd be nice to feel like you've completed something we don't yeah. ever quite get that yeah I mean I guess what I view in terms of what what you know we've um contributed so far is that it is I guess in your career it's a continuum of of contribution and what we do is we package that into 
you know, stories and publish episodes of this um, um, exploration. Yeah. Um, and so I guess that's that's what we will ultimately reflect back on. Yeah. When we, yeah. We put the tools we down. Pushed and we say, a little bit back at a barrier. Yeah. 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 No, no, that's definitely right. Yeah. Um, I suppose it's completely different to the sort of um, like we were talking earlier about in the clinic and that you could go home knowing you've changed a patient's treatment it's worked great that's that's your sort of satisfaction there maybe yeah I think so I think it is it does feel different in a clinical context because it's all um, it's all here now and present and um, and there is more of a sense of urgency to um, to be able to relieve um, a problem to be able to make a make a difference, and also I guess there is that sense that you in the, in the time frames in the clinic you you can see things change. So from a really simple perspective, if if I prescribe a diuretic, we'll see the effect of that mm. diuretic yeah. in a few hours. Yeah. Um, and it's you know there at least um, um, for some of the drugs that we disc- we we use, then you know we get very predictable effects um whereas what we're doing in the lab is often quite unpredictable and we don't know where it's going to take us to um um, but i think we you know for me i've always really valued uh being at the interface um because i think the clinical observations that come from myself my colleagues my patients um will often feed our you know curiosity our 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 minds and generate new questions that we can then take across to the research world and similarly you know I think it really feels like a privilege to be close to the edge in terms of um awareness of of what's happening in our our field that feels like a real privilege um and to be able to take some of that back to the bedside and to the clinic and to um, you know, to say with with confidence, actually, this is this is where things are up to, and you know, this is what's in the pipeline. This is what's in the near future. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, that's what I'm hoping to do with this podcast: is give patients and families a, a perspective of what's going on in the lab and yeah. how research actually works and why it does take a while. And you know, we might do things that ultimately don't work, but it was still worth looking at. You know, if it was a good idea in the first place, it was a good idea. Mm-hmm. Um, because I think I think it's something we could be doing better. Mm. Um, and yeah, that whole thing of perspectives is so right. Like you can hear the same thing explained by four different people and the fifth person will just use slightly different words and you think, yeah. right, I get it now. Yeah. So did you, did you always want to be a clinician? Yeah, I mean, I think going way back, um, so I've been interested in science through high school and it felt like a natural choice to apply um, and study medicine Um, and then actually it was fairly early on in medical school that I differentiated towards paediatrics and and I think the kind of key thing in terms of nephrology was some of the early experiences I had of the specialty so really early paediatric training days and just being seeing the you know the wide spectrum and challenge that um, the specialty offered was 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 really attractive yeah I remember reading when I so I did my PhD in 2010 and um, I, it said kidney in the description <laughs> I didn't really think too much about it I just knew I wanted to do a PhD at that stage I was, I was sort of biochemistry and microbiologist I wasn't really bothered what 
tissue or organ to sell was and they just wanted to do some cell biology and when I saw that they were researching kidneys I remember thinking why we know how they work you know really naive from like one module of physiology in my biochemistry degree <laughs> um, thinking that sort of you know confidence of you thinking well we know all that what mm. and then uh, yeah I actually did a little bit of reading before the interview and uh, found out yeah there was a lot that we we don't know um so just to sort of round off and get an idea of you as a person what do you what do you sort of do to relax when you're not rushed off your feet in the clinic or in the lab okay um so i'm i'm big advocate for keeping healthy and um so running is one of my big hobbies and um passions um and um and i've kind of interspersed the last 10 years with um um various half marathons and marathons and um last year managed to complete the six world marathon majors Word. so um um it was a challenge of it was it was my i was 50 last year at the end of last year um and i was determined to um finish so was that london six. boston so, yeah london boston um berlin chicago tokyo and new york which was the hardest uh was it was definitely my last one in chicago because right. i had only just on the Berlin Marathon two weeks before. So that was a bit of a struggle, but it was an amazing feeling to uh, to complete the challenge. Yeah, yeah, totally. So the longest I've ever done is a, is a half. Uh, I've done the Great North Run a couple of times. Excellent. Um, but the, la- the last time I did it, I didn't do enough training and um, oh, it was really hard going. But luckily, my, my dad had taken me up there in his motorhome. Okay. So he met me at the finish. <laughs> I had a shower because we were camping over at this rugby club. And then just slept all the drive back. It was so much better. The, the first time I did the Great North, I, I drove back. I, okay. I ran it, got straight in my car and drove back. And by the time I got home, I couldn't straighten my legs. <laughs> so like, and that was great. <laughs> so I noticed that there was a patient day sort of on the end of the... Yeah. Um, that's yeah. a really good idea. What was your sort of thinking behind that? Yeah, no, I think, I mean, um, we're really excited to be hosting um, the 13th International Podocyte Conference, which will be in June. Um, and... This meeting has been running now, this is the 13th, it's every two years, so 26 years it's been going for, Um, and there's always been a main meeting, and we've got a three-day main meeting from the 10th to the 12th of June. Um, What we have on the 9th is uh, a meeting that's been being organised by early career researchers, so uh, postdocs and um, students in my lab and and also um, in the Nephro lab, from Cologne are putting together that program so that's that's really exciting um, and then on the Saturday we've got a, an entire day fo- uh, that is patient focused um, and we're hoping to bring together um, four or potentially five uh, patient groups that have all got a connection to um, podocyte biology and podocyte um, uh, disease. What we'll be able to capture from the main meeting um, are um, illustrations from each of the talks. So we've got an illustrator who's going to come along and sketch oh, that's really the cool talks. That, yeah, that, like um, and so that'll help in in some way kind of um, distill some of that content down from um, the main meeting. We're going to have to think about inventive ways of distilling that even yeah. further. But I think, those, I, I think those people do really a really, really good job. Yeah. And it's also about your learning style and stuff, isn't it? And, you know, that, again, is one of the points of the podcast, and it's just a different way of taking information in. Yes. Um, and, no, I think those illustrations are really good. I think the one downstairs... Uh, that they've done for Moyne and his yes. strap med. Yes, that's yeah, right, from one really of the good. Alport syndrome workshops. Was yeah, it? Yeah, yes, it's, it was. You know, it's, it's it 
for those who obviously aren't in this building, it's right by the lift, so I sort of walk past it every day. Mm-hmm. And I work on a sort of arm of that project for Moyne. Mm-hmm. And it's done a really good job of sort of boiling it down. And I think you'd take a lot from that picture, even if you knew nothing about yeah. what was going on. And I think that's really nice to see a patient day there, actually. Yeah. Um, and I think it's I think it's right and important. Patients are getting more and more engaged and interested in the science. I mm-hmm. uh, sort of just think it must be really difficult because at a public level we don't do a very good job of you know I think I think we're doing a much better job within science at educating our sort of target you know patients or people who are sort of interested in that specific area I do think more could be done perhaps by society and not scaring people off science yeah yeah I think that's right I think um I mean actually we've had a few our public engagement program um, a number of um, events that we kind of connect into through the University of Manchester out from our, our, our um, cell matrix centre have given us the opportunity actually to have more of a kind of public rather than patient um, engagement opportunity and so one of the events that I've particularly liked is um, European Researchers Night okay. um, so this is usually the last Friday of September every year and museums open their doors for the night and invite in researchers to set up their stalls and then it's whoever comes by and um, quite often there's a bar and people come and have a chat to you about your kidney research or your lung research or whatever Um, and it's all it all feels fairly relaxed and sociable and um, um, and I've had some fantastic conversations at at those events one one uh, the very first one I went to actually um, we went from the Matrix Centre um, down to the Natural History Museum in London, that fabulous yeah. um, old building. Yeah. And we were just up on um, on the first floor and, and had our kind of Matrix stall. Um, and it, we, uh, yeah, we were going for about three, three and a half hours talking to, you know, non-stop, really. Yeah. There was just so much interest. Yeah, so the appetite um, is there. Absolutely, yeah. absolutely. Yeah. So that's it. That was our interview with Rachel Lennon. I really hope you enjoyed it as much as we did. I hope you gained an insight into what it's like in the world of being a clinician scientist. Uh, In the meantime, uh, Caroline and I are in the process of lining up lots of interviews with different patients and we look forward to bringing that content soon. So if you'd like to give us any feedback, it's always, always welcome. You can use our Twitter handle, which is at KeepItRenal, or check out our Facebook page, uh, again, by searching Keep It Renal within the Facebook browser. Um, please do provide any and all feedback. If you've got any ideas for future episodes or any ideas you'd like to share, uh, please do get in touch. We do read all feedback, and it's all welcome. So thank you very much. I'll see you on the next one. Bye.